My name is Kevin. I am the Aldergrove campus pastor for North Langley Community Church. I'm so excited that you're here. I see some faces that, that I don't recognize. And so if you are new to uh, hanging out with us here at Aldergrove, or maybe it's your first time in church, uh, I just want to say welcome here. Thanks for taking a risk. It's always a little bit scary walking into a new place. And so uh, I'm, I'm thankful that you're here today. I pray that you experience the presence of God today. That's what we're here for. So uh, like Tasha and... Um, John have both mentioned, we're in the middle of a series called Abide right now, uh, and it's all about being apprenticed to Jesus in worship. And so far, we've talked about uh, what it means to hunger and thirst after God in worship. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be thankful in worship and how that changes our perspective on our lives, ourselves, and God. Last week, we talked about what it means to be surrendered to God in worship. And about how there are things that sometimes try and steal away our worship from the one good God who deserves our worship. And today we're going to be talking about what it means to uh, be encountering the awe and wonder of God in worship. So I'm really excited for, for our message today and, uh, and I trust that God's going to do some cool things today. Uh, before we, we get too much further into the, the sermon, one of the things that I thought would be really fun to do that we're only doing at this campus, not at our other campuses, is uh, we're interviewing worship leaders. Uh, there are amazing people that lead us in worship every week. We have guitarists and piano players and drummers and vocalists and all sorts of great people. And one of the roles that you might not know that we have up here is there's always someone called the team leader leader. And the team leader spends a lot of time actually preparing for the Sunday service. They pick the songs, arrangements, they're thinking through the themes and all those types of things. And so I thought it would be really great if each week we interviewed one of our team leaders so that you could get to know them a little bit, these people that are leading us in worship, and also to be able to hear a little bit about their heart for worship. So today I'm going to interview my friend Michael Bogress. So please welcome Michael to the stage. And we're going to sit over here in these comfy chairs and uh, have this uh, little conversation, a little interview style. So welcome here, Michael. Is this thing on? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Okay. Way to check. Good job. Uh, Testing. One, two, three. <laughs> okay. First of all, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and how you ended up here at Aldergrove? Uh, my name is Michael. I've been, uh, I feel like serving in churches for a really long time, ever since I was a kid, in either some form of music ministry. Uh, my wife is Nicole. She's in the prayer room right now, uh, serving there as one of the prayer team members. And we came to Bethel uh, originally, before it merged with NLCC. Uh, I was working part-time at a larger church in Surrey, doing um, their music director, music producer role. And uh, Nicole and I had been talking for a really, really long time about what we wanted church to look like for us and for our family one day and how we wanted to kind of find a community where we could, you know, settle down, raise kids and be really involved in together. And then COVID hit and uh, it, we were trying out churches uh, online, which is, I don't know if you've ever tried doing, I'm sure everybody here tried out <laughs> churches online. It's really, really weird. Um, and then we started going to different churches in person, but we always found ourselves coming back here because Nicole's sister, uh, Jana, and her husband Mike were here, and we're close with them, and so it was, we were just kind of going back and forth to Bethel every week and then trying new things, and then uh, we ended up just basically coming to Bethel because we, we loved the community, we loved the people, we loved their heart for worship and their heart for community, and then uh, we found out that uh, NLCC and Bethel were going to merge, and we thought, hey, this is a really great opportunity for us to get involved on the ground floor of something uh, that we both can be invested in and serve in. 
That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that whole story. Thanks yeah. for sharing that, Michael. Surprise. Yeah. Um, okay, something else you might not know about Michael uh, is, is I hear you uh, have an acting career. This isn't one of the questions we talked about ahead of time, but can you tell us <laughs> if, if I could only watch one Hallmark movie, only one Hallmark movie, which Hallmark movie should I watch? Who do I need to kill? <laughs> <laughs> so apparently Michael has a speaking role in a Hallmark movie called... The Wishing Tree. The Wishing Tree. Okay. Okay, so, so let me, let me back this up. This will be quick. Uh, in grade 12, uh, this, these movie people came to our school, and they're like, we need uh, essentially a bunch of random students to play a Christmas part. And they were like, we'll pay you $1,000, and we'll feed you for three days. And in grade 12, we were like, uh-huh, this sounds great. And so a bunch of us tried out, and it was cutthroat. And they were, like, measuring us, like, around our necks and legs because they had costumes already made. I don't know. And I got a role and they came to me and they're like, okay, you're going to like have a response moment to one of the main characters. And I'm not even kidding you. My line was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like main character talk, main character talk, and then camera pans to me and I'm looking dead at it and I go, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of a tough line because you don't like, <laughs> it's, you could go, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Mm. Like, There's a lot of ways to do that. Yeah, you could drastically change the outcome yeah. of the movie. Of course um, you can. They ended up cutting out the soundbite. <laughs> <laughs> so your line didn't even make no, it. No, you just see my face, and it's like scrawny little Michael, and it's just staring blankly, and they, you can't hear a thing. Okay, The Wishing Tree. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen. Don't yes. watch it. Okay, I will. Um, okay, a little more serious question. Um, you, you play guitar, you play a number of instruments, but one of the instruments you play here is guitar. And uh, when you're playing electric guitar, sometimes there are guitar solos. Um, sometimes when you're playing keys, there's key solos, or there's spaces in music where it's just instrumental, uh, sometimes solos, sometimes just kind of going through a verse of the song. I've had people ask me, what is the point of like musical solos during worship songs where there's no lyrics? Like, what are we supposed to be doing or thinking during those times? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think if we look at uh, worship, whether it's modern worship or historical worship, there's always been moments in, um, in music where, you know, the congregation or, or individuals are singing, and then there's a bit of a break. And I think we can look back to the original structures of the Psalms even. And as you read through the Psalms, the Psalms are like these original songs that were written to, you know, praise God, glorify God. And 71 times throughout the Psalms, we encounter this word salah. And uh, I was taught this by a, a friend of mine who is, is really, really wise. And he said, uh, you know, Salah, I think the actual definition of it means silence. Uh, but a lot of biblical scholars have uh, interpreted it to mean stop and reflect or stop and listen. And I think that's what we can uh, interpret from these musical moments. Because, you know, we're singing so many words all the time about the grandeur of God and the majesty of God and all the things that he's done. And heaven's coming down. And you're like, what does that even look like? And I think it gives us a moment to stop, reflect, meditate, pray. And a lot of these solos, they're not, you know, I'm not ripping a guitar solo on a Sunday like yeah. ACDC. It's, yeah. They're usually just following the vocal melody or the melody of the song or, you know, piano solos. They typically follow the melody of the song. Like even the old hymns are following the melody of the song. And I think it's just to allow people to, to focus in on uh, what are we actually talking about? How does this relate to me? How do I reflect on this? You know, what am I bringing here on a Sunday morning? Uh, and what do these words actually mean in the context of what's going on in my life, but also the context of what's going on in our church or in a, in a sermon series? 
That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate that. Um, okay, so as, as a team leader, um, there's a lot that I've been saying you kind of do before Sunday. Um, can you walk me through a little bit about what it means to be on a worship team or a team leader and some of the things that, that you're thinking about before you show up here on Sunday? Yeah, one of the, uh, the first things I always text Isaac about when he schedules me, uh, or Tasha now, I guess, because uh, she's been sending out the scheduling requests, is uh, like, what is the theme? What are we talking about? Because I think in the context of a, a service, um, worship and speaking and communion and coffee, everything kind of flows together. And I love how thematic you can be if we're talking about worship and we're talking about awe and wonder. Uh, we can sing songs about awe and wonder. We can listen about awe and wonder. And so... Uh, I usually try to tie it into the theme as much as possible, and then, you know, we come up with musical arrangements and stuff from there. Awesome. And what night does the team get together here and rehearse? Uh, Tuesday nights. So if you are musically inclined, and <laughs> you look down at people playing instruments on stage, and you think, oh my gosh, I play guitar in my room, I could never do that, uh, please do that. Uh, hmm. We always want more people on the worship team. I, I love the idea of a big full band, lots of singers, and so, yeah. Awesome. Okay, uh, one kind of last question is, uh, today we are talking about awe and wonder. As a worship leader, like, do you have any thoughts that you would like to share with us on the topic that we're talking about today? Yes. Uh, I think two things came to mind when I read this question, um, that when you sent them to me. Uh, the first one is, I feel like awe and wonder expands our worship experiences because we're singing about all these things like heaven come down or fire fall down or consuming fire. Like, what does that actually look like? And I think we look back to stories in the Bible where we see God appear uh, to his people in such amazing and crazy ways, like a burning bush or he's parting the seas. Uh, I also think, you know, we're singing about a God who created the heavens and the earth, you know, the creator of the world, but we're singing songs that, you know, relate to him being very, very involved in our lives. Even John was saying, you know, God is here with us. And so mm -hmm. it's just amazing to me that, you know, we're singing about this creator of the universe, but we're also, you know, recognizing that he's here with us in worship. And I think awe and wonder just expands our ability to understand that. And then I think just to piggyback off of that, uh, I think, yeah, for me, it establishes like a, a heart of gratitude, you know, mm -hmm. that, that the creator of the world would actively yeah. want to be involved in my life or our life as a church. And I think when we have awe and wonder about the things that God has done, we can really, you know, have sincere gratitude for the way he is involved with our lives. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to share? Anything else as a worship leader? You're like, man, I just wish the church knew this. Not, to be honest, not really. I have been really, really blessed by everybody here. I think this church has a really, really cool worship culture. I, I love it when we're up here and people are singing loud. And, you know, I find that people even sing songs they don't know really loud. So I've been, uh, yeah, just really blessed by all of you. Uh, and yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Say thank you to Michael for me. Thanks, Michael. Let me just throw that out there. Sweet. That's awesome. I love hearing different uh, perspectives and different thoughts. Um, yes. Thank you so much. And uh, next week, we'll, we'll do this again. Um, right now, I want to start with a story. I want to start my message with a story. If, if you've heard me preach years ago, you might have heard this story already, but uh, it was a completely different church in context at the time. So uh, I want you to picture 12-year-old Kevin. 12-year-old Kevin, and, uh, and I got to go on a cruise to Mexico with my friend and his family. This is Kevin living his best 12-year-old life. It was wonderful. And one of the reasons why I got to go on this cruise with my friend and his family is his dad was into astronomy. 
And so like looking at the stars and, and checking things out. And, and while we were on this cruise in Mexico, uh, there was going to be a solar eclipse. And so like solar eclipse is like when the, the sun is there and then the moon kind of passes between the, the sun and the earth or my head, whatever you like to go there, not to scale. Um, but, um, and it passes through and it's this, this, it's, it's this amazing phenomenon. So um, I got to go on this cruise. There were lots of kind of like space things. Like when we boarded the ship, there is all these telescopes and people having suitcases full of like... I don't know, space gear, I don't know what it was, but uh, they're bringing all these things. And so the morning of the eclipse, it's like a hot summer Mexico morning, and uh, there, there's all these people, like the deck is full of people, because everyone is there. And I actually remember, it was really cool, because like right over there, like about, I don't know, that far away, was Buzz Aldrin. I don't know if you guys know, a lot, a lot of you probably know Buzz Aldrin. He was the second man to walk on the moon with Neil Armstrong. And uh, he was on this cruise, because it was kind of like all the space nuts, right? And so they were there, and it was fantastic. And I remember um, there were all these signs warning us, it's, it's crazy, because all these people are there to see the eclipse, right? But there's all these signs and people going around being like, don't look at the eclipse. It's going to wreck your eyes. Like, you need to actually have a special way to look at the eclipse. Because if you look right at the sun, it's going to burn out all the bits and pieces that we have in our eyeballs, right? Um, and so, so what they said was is that you had to have a special way to look at it. And so one of the ways was is people would have, like, cardboard boxes with mirrors. And, like, they would kind of, I don't get that one. But what I had was is I kind of had this, like, goggles with, like, a, a, a shield and it, it felt kind of like I was wearing a welder's mask where I could still see it, but it was like greatly dimmed. And they said that sunglasses wouldn't help. If you looked at it through sunglasses, you would still wreck your eyes. And so I remember it was so cool. Um, so I'm standing on the boat and we're, I'm looking up through my little shield thing at the sun. And the moon comes and it, and it covers the sun completely. And when that happened, very quickly it went from a, a sunny Mexico morning to very dark. And it felt like nighttime. And it happened so fast, like just in a moment. And, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But as I was looking at it, you could still see the ring of the sun. And it was so cool because it was blocked out. But it looked kind of like a ring. And, and what happened was, is as the moon moved, and it was so quick, like this only happened for a couple of seconds. As it moved just a tiny bit, all of this light started exploding from one side of the moon. And they call it the diamond ring effect. Because you could still see the ring of the sun around the moon, but all the light exploding on one side. And it was by far the coolest natural phenomenon I've ever seen in my life. It blew my mind. And, and I want you to know that we're today, in Scripture, we're going to be looking at something that is unique and crazy like a solar eclipse, something that is so extraordinary, something that blows your mind, something that you actually need to be shielded from in order to be able to look at because it's so powerful. In the same way that I had to protect my eyes from the sun, we need to be protected in today's Scripture to see what it's about. We're going to be looking at a passage together in Exodus chapter 33 and a little bit into 34. And as we look at this passage together, let's not forget the amazing, unique thing that is taking place here. It's not normal. It's, it's more rare than a solar eclipse. It's supernatural and beautiful. And this passage of scripture is actually really ripe with things that we can glean and learn about who God is and why he is so worthy of our worship. Our passage today is mostly about a conversation between God and Moses, and it's a dialogue between the two of them, and Moses and the nation of Israel, they had just left Egypt, 
They, so they're no longer slaves. They're kind of out in the wilderness. And uh, it's kind of before they started wandering for 40 years and before they go into the promised land. And so that's kind of like where our story picks up. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and, I have found, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Okay, so I just read it like that, but I don't think that's how Moses said it. If, you, if your Bible's open, what happened in chapter 32? Anyone have their Bible open? What happens in chapter 32? What's that chapter called? The golden calf. And so if you know this, I'm not going to get into this too much, but, but God just got pretty angry with the people. They had stopped worshiping God. They were worshiping this golden calf that they had made, and, and God's anger kind of came down. And, and so Moses, the very next thing is he's having this conversation with God. So I don't think he's talking to God like, hey, God, so this thing that you're calling us to. I think it's more like Moses has, has, is, is speaking not with confidence right now. I think it's more like, hey, Lord, Lord, don't forget us. Remember, you found favor with us, right, God? We're, we're your people still, right, God? And so I think that that is the tone that Moses has in this verse. Okay, we're going to keep reading at verse 14. And, um, and the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, so this is the second time that God has to reassure Moses, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And so Moses has this a second appeal to God, and he's, he's asking for more reassurance that God is not, in fact, still angry with him. And he's saying, God, come with us. Don't abandon us. Don't just go before us. Don't send an angel with us. Lord, actually be with us. And this is what the Lord replies in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I love it when the Bible talks about God knowing us by name. I just think that there's something so intimate and beautiful and sacred about the way God interacts with us, his children, his people, and that he knows us by name. And so God is reassuring Moses again and again. And then Moses makes this third request, this third appeal to God. And this is what we're going to focus on today. In verse 18, then Moses said, now show me your glory. Now show me your glory. This is a very simple but a profound request. See, Moses had probably experienced God's glory more than any other human since Adam and Eve. When you think about it. Like maybe, maybe Abraham, but like God, God and Moses had this special relationship where the Bible says they talked like friends talk. And where, where um, Moses had seen the pillar and the cloud that God used to lead his people, he had spent time in the tent of meeting where God came down to meet and speak to Moses. So the interesting thing about Moses' request is that he's not asking for leadership training. Like, he's just about to lead this nation of a couple million people, and they're out in the wilderness, and, and he doesn't say, Lord, show me how to lead these people. Or he doesn't say, okay, God, how long are we going to be in the wilderness here? Like, where are we going? What's happening? Lord, fill me in on the plan. 
He doesn't ask for those things. What he says is, I've seen a glimpse of you, God. I've seen it and I've tasted it. And what I want more than anything else in the world is more of your glory. I want to experience uh, more of the awe and wonder. I desire you more than anything else of the world. And this is our thesis text for today. Encountering the awe and wonder of God in worship is the same prayer that we pray when we pray, God, show me your glory. Okay, verse 19. We're going to keep going here. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. I love that. I think of God's glory and his wonder being so awe-inspiring that we as mortals can't even fully look at him. Let that sink in a little bit. That the awe and wonder that God, he himself, in his majesty, is so holy that if we were to look at him, that it would consume us, it would overwhelm us. Experiencing the fullness of him is something that we as humans can't do. It's just like how my eyes can't fully look at the sun without some kind of shield or veil or gog, just something to kind of block it out to keep the intensity away because it would just damage my eyes. The sun is good, but it would still come and it would destroy my eyes. In the same way, God is good and holy and it is so good, it is so holy that it would completely overwhelm us. I think, church, that if we approach God in worship, thinking about the awe and wonder of who he is, that we, we would never approach worship, we wouldn't take it for granted, we wouldn't trivialize it, it wouldn't be something that we just half-heartedly engage in. We get to approach this God. I love that. Okay, verse 21, it says, Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is a beautiful image of Moses standing on a rock in a cleft in a place of protection, God's hand over him because his glory is too much for Moses to comprehend. He is hidden and protected. And I think about it like a shy little child hiding behind their parent's leg when things get too much and they just need to hide a little bit because it's overwhelming what they're experiencing. Okay, and this is, this is the really cool part. Okay, we're going to move into verse 30, or chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, stood there with him, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Something like a solar eclipse has just happened. Something so wonderful, so beautiful, that Moses had to be hidden by the hand of God in a cleft in a rock while, Moses, or sorry, while God came by and Moses just looked at a glimpse of the back of God. It's like seeing the sun, but safely behind this shield or this filter. God's presence and his glory is a blessing, but it's also a dangerous threat to Moses and something that he needs to be protected from. It made me think of this line from uh, a book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And um, th this is a, a, a line describing Lucy, who is about to meet 
the Christ figure in the story named Aslan. If you don't know the story, just skip over this part. But if you do know the story, I think it's pretty cool. This is Lucy speaking. She says, is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. And if anyone, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is tells you? Who said anything about safe? course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that line. I think that describes what's happening here with Moses. And as Moses is hidden in the cleft, he seems a glimpse of God, not a safe God, but a powerful God, a holy God worthy of our worship. And I love this. This is our, our main verse for today. How does Moses respond? There's only one way that he responds. In verse 8, it says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. His response is worship. It's all we can do in response. For Moses, the closer he got to Yahweh, the closer he got to God, the more he realized to discover. Church, I am so thankful that we follow a God that like, we don't get to a point where we've learned everything about God and then we're done. We follow a God that there's always more to discover. There's always more to learn. There's always more to experience. Moses didn't just talk with God face to face and say, okay, I've talked to God, we're good. He talks to God and he says, I want more of that. That's all I care about. I need more of that. There, there's a dichotomy that we use to describe God, that he is both transcendent and imminent. And the transcendence of God means that he is so far above us that his holiness, his majesty, his greatness, his perfection... Put him on a completely different level than humanity. And that's true. That's his transcendence. But his imminence, his closeness, speaks to the fact that he is near to us. That he is personally intimate. That he knows us by name. That he is still Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God is both transcendent and imminent. He's both above and close. Next week, Wes is going to be speaking. He's going to be talking about the closeness and the imminence, the nearness of God. But today I want to focus on the holiness, on the transcendence, on the awe and wonder of God. I think of transcendence and, and imminence kind of like a pendulum. Because God is both transcendent and imminent, I think we can focus on one more than the other. I am obviously a very young man. Okay, right? Yeah. Um, but here's my take on church before I was around, okay? My take on church was is that we focused a lot more on the transcendence of God than we do today. Things were very formal. There was ritual. There was care, care taken to honor the holiness and the sacredness of church and the way we celebrated holidays. We wore a Sunday best to church. There was respect and reverence built into worship. But because now the church has swung the pendulum a little bit more to the imminence of God, I think we've lost some of our appreciation for the transcendence, for the bigness and the awe and wonder of who God is. Mark Buchanan says this when talking about God. He says, I mean that we want him to be comfortable rather than comforting. I mean we want him to be peaceable, to keep his peace to be docile rather than to be peacemaking and peace-giving. 
Instead of being our hiding place, we would prefer God to be our ace in the hole. And if that doesn't work, we'd prefer to hide from him. And there's kind of a perpetuating downward spiral to this. We often get stuck because we want a God who is too safe. And when we find him in the soft logic of our half-baked theology that a too safe God has no power to get us unstuck, his arm is too short for that, he doesn't so much forgive sin, he accommodates it. He's the God who makes anything more than living on the borderland seem imprudent, fanatical, and ill-advised. That's from his book, Your God is Too Safe. Maybe you've seen the t-shirt. Um, I used to go to Christian concerts all the time, and I would see this t-shirt. It says, Jesus is my homeboy. Now, that statement's like true. That, that speaks to the imminence of God. But I always found that like a disrespectful thing. I, I, always, I was like, I could never wear that shirt. I couldn't wear that. To me, it seemed like it crossed a line, and it didn't give respect to the awe and wonder of God. And so the question that I've actually been wrestling with a lot this week as I've been preparing this message is where are we supposed to land that, that swinging pendulum between the, the transcendence and the holiness of God and the Jesus is my homeboy, closeness, imminence of God? Or is it supposed to be swinging back and forth at different times? I, I, don't, know, I don't fully know the answer to that. But today, I know that I would like to swing the pendulum, at least for today, a little bit more to the bigness and the transcendence of God. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take just a couple of seconds, and, um, and, and we, we talked, and this is going to be some audience participation, so get ready to yell um, or speak loudly. But, but what are some of the things that bring you into the awe and wonder of God? Tasha talked about, being, uh, about seeing a sunrise or sunset, I can't remember, but that was one of the things that makes her experience the awe and wonder of God. What are some of the things that, that help you experience the awe and wonder of God? Speak them out. The ocean, yeah. Sorry? Beauty, yes. Being in the mountains, waterfalls, yes. A thunderstorm, the birth of a child, Yes, there are so many things like this. When, and when we see these things, we experience the beauty of God. Just a couple more. Does anyone else have any? A rainbow, yeah. Worshiping in community, yeah, that's amazing. And so we have these things that, that help us to, to encounter the awe and wonder of God. When in prison... John, who was a disciple and a friend of Jesus, receives what we call the book of Revelation. And I think there's an amazing contrast here in this quote from Tim Hughes. He says, The view before him was so overwhelming that human language became woefully insufficient. Jesus had hair white like wool, eyes like a blazing fire, feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing water, his face like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Overwhelmed and undone, John falls at his feet as though dead. Years earlier, John had been so comfortable in Jesus' presence that he reclined closely next to him. But here, the sight of Christ in all his majesty was too much for John to deal with. He hits the deck, and now the creator of the heavens and the earth, perfect and holy, the one who was and is and is to come, reaches out and intimately places his hand on John and utters the stunning words, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. Amen. See, transcendence is the awe 
and the wonder of God. And worship is our response to the awe and wonder of God. Paul talks about this, this encounter between Moses and God in our text today. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, I love the way Paul speaks. You'll, you'll see in a second. But uh, this is what he says about, uh, about Moses encountering God and then about how we encounter God now through Jesus. He says, The old way with laws etched in stone led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face, for his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory, the glory of Moses, was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way which has been replaced was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which remains forever? Yeah, I love that. I love that. Go Paul. And so Paul is saying that, that when Moses and experienced God, when he was given the old law and when God passed in front, that that was glorious and that was wonderful. In fact, that was so wonderful that Moses' face shone. And they actually had to put a veil over his face because it was freaking everyone out because they were like, that guy's head is glowing. And, and so they had to cover up the glory of God on Moses. And Paul is saying that that, that, that was the glory of the old law, which ultimately leads to death. How much more glorious, how much more awe-inspiring, how much more wonderful is this new law that leads to life? There's this new covenant One brought death, one brings life. Which one is more glorious? Paul tells us that what we have today in Jesus in this new covenant is far greater than anything Moses witnessed. It's greater than anything Moses ever saw. And do we ever take the time to just sit, to let this wash over us, the awe and wonder of God, when a child's born, when we see a sunset, when we're looking at the ocean, when we're in corporate worship, do we take the time to allow God's wonder and his holiness to just wash over us, affect us, and change us? Tim Hughes says, in worship, heaven's reality becomes our reality. You see, worship is not about escaping the real world. No, in worship, we introduce the real world. We all face mountains, mountains of despair, sickness, disappointment, relational breakdown, financial strain, and loss. In worship, we don't deny the existence of these mountains. Rather, we acknowledge a greater existence, a God who rules and reigns, who stands with us at all times, the one who will never leave our side. See, wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, he has more to offer. Whether you feel like you're, you're kind of far away from God and maybe you're Israel just after the golden calf and you feel far and like you've just done some horrible things that God should be so angry at you about, there's more to God. He wants to approach you and say that he finds favor in you, that he knows you by name, that he loves you. Or maybe like Moses, you spend time with God every day and you talk to him like you talk to a friend and you experience him in in the tent of meeting, you experience him in worship, you've experienced his glory and, and your prayer is, God, show me your glory. Whether you're Israel worshiping the golden calf or you're Moses in the tent of meeting, our prayer is the same. God, show me your glory. There's always more wonder and awe to be discovered in God. So today, I just want to take a, take a few minutes and talk about a few ways that we could respond to the awe and wonder of God in worship. There are many ways. I'm sure if we kind of did a poll, we could come up with lots, but I want to give you four today. 
four ways of how you could experience the awe and wonder of God in worship today. The first is, I would love for you to consider the place where you meet with Jesus to be holy ground. Something I would encourage you to try is during our last song after we've served communion is to, to simply remove your shoes, to do something physical, something that can actually seem kind of silly is to just remove your shoes. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said, Moses, remove your shoes for the ground you are standing on is holy. Today, taking off your shoes doesn't make the ground any more holy, but it does focus your heart and your body. It reminds our spirit of the holiness of God. And sometimes it's small things like this that help me remember the awe and the wonder of God in worship. So that's one. Two, consider the posture of your body. Have you ever worshipped God with your hands open, ready to receive from him? Or have you ever worshipped God with your hands raised like a child reaching for their loving parent, like a child crying out to their father or mother? Have you ever approached God from your knees out of the respect and the power of his holiness? I want you to consider the awe and wonder of God in the posture in which you choose to worship. And may it be something that pushes you out of your comfort zone. Thirdly, we've already talked about this a little bit, but ask God to just show me your glory. That's Moses' prayer. Let it be our prayer. Seek more of God in worship. Like, honestly, I know for me, sometimes my worship becomes lazy or predictable. It becomes comfortable. It's, I know what's going to happen. I know what God's going to do because that's all I let him do. I know what I'm going to do. I know what the team, I know when to sit. I know when to stand. And it's predictable and it becomes lazy. And I know where my thoughts go. And so I want to challenge you. Where do your thoughts go when you're worshiping? Do we get stuck focusing on the arrangement or the, the music that's happening, whether or not we like the melody of the song or not? What's for lunch today? How much longer is that guy going to be on the stage talking for? It's not long, I promise. Um, but like, if your prayer is, Lord, show me your glory, as opposed to focusing on those other things, if that's your prayer, I would encourage you to pray that today. We have an amazing prayer team who would love to pray with you. They, they're normally at the front here on the sides, and we also have people in the prayer room in the back. If you've never encountered the awe and wonder of God, I would encourage you to, to come to our prayer team and ask for prayer. People that, that will just ask God to reveal the awe and wonder of who he is, his holiness, his majesty to you. Invite some people to pray that prayer along with you. And then lastly, the fourth thing is to participate in and celebrate communion. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up to the stage. Communion is something that we do to remember what Christ has done for us. It's a reminder of the remarkable story of love that was poured out to us through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's about a new agreement, this new agreement that Paul was talking about, where humanity can be saved by the blood of Jesus, where we're given new life through the work that Christ did, and we may approach the throne of God, our Father, and be welcomed as children. And so today, as we celebrate communion, I would love for you to be thinking about the vastness of God's love demonstrated for you in the work of Jesus on the cross. Usually we invite people to participate in communion who have a basic understanding of what it is and who have accepted Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And so if you're uncomfortable or unsure about what's about to happen here, don't feel obligated to participate. Feel free to just sit where you are and just observe. 
And quite often, we, we, one of the things that I really like about our Alder Grove campus here is we do communion different ways. Sometimes we do it with the kids in, with the kids out. Sometimes we do it like really slow, where we intentionally have you in lines for a really long time so that you can, you know what I'm talking about, so that you can get to know people that you're standing with. And sometimes I think we want to take communion in, in a little bit more of a somber way as well. And so today when you come forward to commune, I'm going to encourage you to not do the, the long talking thing. I'm going to encourage you to come and take the elements, to take the bread and the cup, to bring it back to your seat. The worship team is going to be playing a, a relatively new song for us. Feel free to worship along with the worship team, but I encourage you not to make this the social part of worship. We love that part and we'll do it again, but that's not today. And so I encourage you to just stand in the awe and the wonder of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And that's what we're going to do in communion today. We're going to remember what Christ has done for us, the single most event, most important event in human history. So the team's going to start playing now, and, and uh, the servers are going to come forward who are going to be serving us in communion. We're going to ask that even if you're in the middle, that you try and make your way to the side aisles, if you're on the bottom floor, and come and get communion from the sides, and that you exit through the center aisle. And so, um, yeah, so I'm going to invite the team to lead us. I invite you to stand with me, and I'm, I'm going to close in prayer. Lord. Today we stand in awe and wonder of who you are and in what you've done. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good, that you are so holy, and that you still gave yourself for us. And so, Lord, today as we celebrate communion, Lord, may, may you come and meet us here. We expect, we expect you to show up, Lord, Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we remember the sacrifice that was made, may we just sit in awe and wonder of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.